Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, I'm super excited. I'm going to sit down and talk with uh, an amazing athlete, um, but also like a really incredible and intelligent thinker. Uh, I'm sitting here with, I'm going to sit here with Addie Bracey. Uh, Addie has her master's degree in sports performance and psychology. She is also the author of The Mental Training for Ultra Running, which is a book I'm partway through now. It's awesome. Uh, I kind of started on one of the chapters that really connected to me about being vulnerable. Uh, and I kind of want to talk about that a little bit in the outro here. Um, but Addie is an amazing athlete. She currently, her most recent race uh she won the run rabbit run 100 miler which is this incredible ultra in steamboat springs colorado and steamboat's amazing that whole place is unbelievably beautiful uh and we go into that a little bit in this episode uh and i think it'll be surprising you you see people who won these races and who are high performers and you know are just setting these amazing times on these courses and to the you know the person from the outside you you can kind of assume like oh they must have crushed it they must have had an amazing day they must like nothing went wrong uh and then sitting and talking to Addy kind of brings you back to reality where you're like oh yeah even the elite athletes who are winning these races are going through this incredible roller coaster uh, challenges, throwing up, you know, uh, times where they feel terrible and all that. They, uh, a lot of them just have that mental fortitude to be able to kind of push through that. Um, I reached out to Addy originally when hearing about her book, Mental Training for Ultra Running. Uh, I think that aspect, that side of the sport is what actually fascinates me the most. And I think it's what drew me in uh, when I first started uh, doing any sort of endurance stuff. Um, it was this idea of the mental challenges and the potential for mental growth. And and through that, the potential for like emotional growth outside of the actual sport itself. Um, and so I wanted to talk to Addy. Super excited. It was an awesome conversation. She is incredible. I could, I feel like I could probably pick her brain for hours and hours and hours. Um, but, you know, I am obviously thankful enough to be able to sit down with her for an hour, talk with her, um, kind of hear some of these concepts, bounce ideas off of her, and just learn and grow from the conversation. So, hope you guys enjoy it. Um, just a side note, housekeeping business real quick. Next week is Thanksgiving. Uh, I am not going to put an episode out next week. Hopefully I will be on a vacation and exploring and hanging out with my family. Um, so, so yeah, there will be no new episode next week, but after that, we're going to come back, uh, and we're going to sit down. We're going to talk with marathon swimmer Catherine Breed. Uh, she has an incredible story of setting the record uh, for crossing Monterey Bay. It's 25 miles. And she was it was awesome. It was a fun combo. So that'll be after uh, the week after Thanksgiving. So um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Let's jump into it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 278 with the amazing... Addie Bracey. Uh, but I'm here with Addie Bracey. Addie, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Excited to chat. Yeah. So um, when you're thinking about like just ultra running as a sport and you're also kind of combining that with with the whole like sports psychology kind of aspect, like what is some of like the first thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think what drew me to the sport and then what I've seen is in my opinion, ultra running's like pushing like psychological resilience more than any other sport right now, in my opinion. Um, like obviously there's a physical component. It's not like you can't train and, and have that there, but when you look at 
you know, races that have been happening recent, recently, like, like a big's backyard ultra or something like yes. that. Like, yeah. I just think the the psychological piece is so huge and I wish it was gaining more attention just in the psychology and sports psychology world in general, because I think some pretty incredible things are happening with what people yeah. are uh, able to do. And we're kind of at the forefront of like some, I, I, in my opinion, like as interesting as, you know, the, the sub two hour marathon barrier, I think that there's some really cool things happening with like the psychological piece. Um, so that, that was what led me to be interested in the sport and then to write the book too, if obviously is, I just don't feel like there's been like a ton of research or information out about, uh, psychology in the realm of the sport. It's different than every other sport. So it's also like kind of a, a small sample size. Um, yeah. So that's just been my experience is recognizing how big a piece of the pie that it is. And then, um, hopefully wanting to kind of help provide some, uh, resources or at least insider ideas into what people can do to kind of prepare for those like psychological challenges. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's just funny mm-hmm. that you say like pushing the limits to the, yeah. And I agree with you, like to the same kind of level as the two hour marathon, mm-hmm. um, just mentioning Big's backyard, man. And, you know, not even being there, not even mm-hmm. witnessing it, but just following it online and hearing about just the insaneness of what Harvey Lewis was yeah. able to do. Like, I mean, and obviously the, the runners that were with him towards the end, but I mean, I can't even imagine the mental state you're in after I was over 300 miles in like three days. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's the, the mental and psychological piece of dealing with discomfort for that long. It's the, uh, persistence towards like an unknown goal, even like, there's not like, there's a finish line that you just keep going. But then, but then I think the piece that's like so fascinating from a more biological or physiological standpoint is like the cognitive impact of sleep deprivation, you know, that they're not sleeping at all. And so that in and of itself to be able to like stay focused after three days and like know what you're doing and be able to stick to your fueling plan. Like it's, you know, that's like, I don't know, Navy SEAL training, like maybe not to that level, but in some ways, like it's pretty incredible to be able to um, kind of sift through the impact, like like I said, the cognitive impact of that and to keep going. Like that's something that's pretty profound uh, that we've never really seen before. Yeah. I, I just happened to be on Instagram right when he finished and someone did like a live video. I was like, I have, I have to see this. This is going to be fascinating. And then I was like, oh yeah. Like when you interview someone after three days of no sleep, yeah, their brain's not going to be able to form thoughts that well. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh man, that was, that was just wild in and of itself. Like seeing him try to express how he felt at the end of that. It was crazy. Yeah, for sure. I didn't see that. That'd be interesting to watch though. Oh, it, it will be. And you'll be like, oh yeah, the brain is kind <laughs> of mush at that point. And then there's this whole like aspect of pushing the body and having the body go, go, go. And then as soon as you get to the finish line or someone tells you you're done, the, it, you just shut down. And mm-hmm. like, do you, do you ever like go into that at all? Like, do you understand why that happens? Um, I mean, I think that there's obviously like a, a goal setting component of like, if your brain knows what the job is and the expectations, like with the right tools, it will try and and motivation and like fuel behind it. It will try to do that. Um, but it's, you know, as soon as that thing's accomplished, it's kind of like, I I think of it as comparable to, I used to run on the track pretty fast and, you know, you finish like a short race and like physically the second you finish, it's like your body is just like done. And I think psychologically and mentally and ultra running, it's like the same thing. Like as soon as, as soon as you're done, it can almost just like stop. But that's also the kind of, uh, to me, the fascinating piece about Big's backyard specifically is your brain doesn't know how long it's going. And that's like actually really difficult for, uh, that's not how our minds like to work. They like to know, like, how long do I have to keep doing this? And so even that point in and of itself, I'm I'm sure there's gotta be, I don't know, like almost even like a more overwhelming relief because it's like, I didn't even know how long I was going to be doing this. And so I wasn't even prepared to stop. And now I get to stop. And there's probably just like a totally letting your foot off the gas kind of thing. Yeah. Here's the next level. I just, I just came up with this. You ready for this? (laughs) So you tell them that they stopped, right? You're like, Oh yeah, you're done now. And then for five minutes, they get to like internalize that. And they're like, fake out. 
keep going. Oh no. Oh, that would be the worst race of all time. <laughs> yeah. I'd be curious how many people would keep going. That would be really fascinating. That would be like a really interesting, like psychological study there. Yeah, totally. Um, what do you think? So I, I made a list. I have my journal in front of me because uh, a while ago I made a list of like everything ultra running has, has taught me and brought to my life. And one of it, one of the things that I think is probably the most important is just self-efficacy, which is like the belief that you're going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know just based off of, I just, and for everyone full transparency, I bought your book this morning and I've read a little bit of it. Um, so I was looking through kind of the titles of the chapters and based off of your, your chapters, I know this whole like belief in oneself is a, is a component you talk about. Why, why do you think that is so hard and, and how do you think people can kind of develop that self-efficacy? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I love the word self-efficacy. It's basically like the belief that you have the ability to influence like the result. Um, <clears throat> I think that one of the reasons why it's difficult in anything, obviously, but I, I, I believe that one of the reasons why it's so difficult in ultra running is because we don't like the, the gap in like recent training and like the race situations is so big that, you know, it's not like, like I said, I came from a track and road background and yeah, yeah I was never doing a 5k or a 10k or a marathon at my goal race plate, goal race pace, but you're getting close, right? Like you're doing like workouts that are at least like somewhat similar but for ultra running, it's, it's a big jump, right? Like maybe your longest run going into a hundred was 35 miles or yeah. 40 miles, or maybe you did a 50 mile race, but you're still only covering half. Um, so I think that self-belief and self-efficacy, like it comes even more into play because how do you set out on that like journey when you don't tangibly or like logically, I guess, have like the criteria that suggests that you're ready for it. Um, it's a huge piece. And it's, in my opinion, kind of, not uh, negotiable. <laughs> like you kind of have to have that if you're going to get to the finish line, in my opinion, or I, I think I have a chapter on this too. Uh, you can fill in the gaps a little bit with curiosity. So like, maybe you're not totally convinced that you have what it takes, but you you're convinced enough to be curious enough to try, which yeah. I think is also a big piece of ultra running. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're, so yeah, I love the idea of curiosity there because you're right. Like if you just do a 50 miler before a hundred miler and you've never done one, cause I'm sure like by having experience, like by the time you're on your fifth 100 or whatever, you know, you're building that belief in yourself. But if you've only done 50 miles and, and from what we talked about earlier at 50 miles, at least for me, my body after a 50 mile race is like done. And I'm like, how do you do double? This doesn't even mm -hmm. make sense. This is wild. You know, like what are there any strategies people can use if they're just like kind of getting into the sport in terms of like building their belief that they can do it or yeah yeah i mean i think experience is huge i think you're right that is that is something we see time and again in the sport and in what i've even experienced myself is like yeah the more you do it the more like reference points that you have the more you can kind of like push the needle towards what your body like thinks is normal um what I always try and tell people, I, I'm pretty big on like just biology and psychology and just understanding that we're like human beings. And when you think of it that way, like we weren't, we were, we, we don't have the ability to run hundred miles to do 100 mile races. Like that was developed as like a survival strategy or survival skill. So, you know, even thinking of it that way and recognizing that like there has to be some normalcy or familiarity with uh, that expectation of your body. Like that's something it's kind of like a a big ask in some ways. Um, so even just like imagery or visualization, like making yourself more familiar with the concept so that your brain doesn't associate that with like some kind of extreme experience. You know, if you're going into any kind of physical challenge and you have literally no reference point for what that's supposed to be like, or feel like, like I said earlier, the, the brain doesn't do great with that. It, it likes yeah. to know what's going on. And so, um, imagery and visualization is a great way to kind of introduce, it's not the same, it's not going to replace real experiences, but you can kind of introduce these concepts to your brain in a way that's like, it's not that big of a deal. We can, you can, you can run a hundred miles. It's not like life-threatening. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think again, the, I've seen the curiosity piece be the biggest piece because it's hard. Even I've been doing this for a while and it's not like I'm 
I, I do like 100 every year or two. So it's not like I've done a lot of them. So when I line up, I'm like, I don't know, like, I hope this goes well. Um, but yeah, the curiosity piece can, can be really fun. I, I think that's also why the sport attracts adventurous people, you know, like it attracts yeah. the kind of people that want to go on an adventure and maybe don't know how things are going to turn out, but like, think it's cool anyway. So there's a piece there. It's like, the chicken or the egg, I don't know. Does ultra running make you like more adaptable and like, ch- and, and like chill, like compared to other events in, in our sport, like people are so just like chill and relaxed and like, yeah. cool. um, so I, yeah, I don't know if it like built breeds people that way or if it attracts that kind of person or both, but I think that's a component too. Yeah, no, definitely. What, what got you interested in sports psychology? I mean, obviously you're, you're, and we, I haven't mentioned it yet, but you're like an unbelievable athlete, like a really great runner. Um, and you can talk a little bit about that too, if you want to, but what, what got you interested in this kind of topic? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been a lifelong runner. I ran com- at pretty high level in high school and then ran at the university of North Carolina, um, and then ran post-collegiately for 10 years, uh, on the track and did, you know, Olympic trials in the 10 K Olympic trials in the marathon. And during that whole time, it was like 20 years, so 20, 50, maybe 15 years of competitive running. And I had never been introduced to the idea of sports psychology. Like we had a sports <laughs> psychologist in college, but it, but it was seen as like a bad thing. If you got sent to him, you're like, Oh God, like I got sent to the sports. Like, yeah. Um, so I think it was noticing in my, I think it actually kind of came about when I started coaching, but I kind of connected the dots that a lot of my races that didn't go well in my career, there wasn't like a physical reason. It wasn't like I was injured. It wasn't like the training wasn't there. It just like, wasn't clicking on race day. And then I would see that in my athletes and I just started to recognize like how important the mental piece was. And it's gotten, even in the last three years has gotten to be the, the field is growing like tremendously, which is awesome. But at the time I was doing this, it wasn't that common to, 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 to think that this needed to have like as much attention as the physical side. So that was the piece initially was just recognizing that it was important. And then as I, I live in the Boulder, Denver area, which is, you know, like a training hotspot uh, in the country. And I started looking for a sports psychologist or mental performance, cons- performance consultant. And like, I couldn't really find one that wasn't super expensive. Like, you know, someone that was experienced and working with a lot of Olympians, but like, yeah. I couldn't afford what their rates were that it just wasn't accessible. Yes. So the, the, so I, my experience led me to realize how important the field was. And then what led me to pursue it was I was coaching at the time. And I think I'm a great coach, but I'm one of a lot of great coaches in this area. There's so many that I would trust, you know, with anybody, but there wasn't this resource in, in, in a way that was accessible. So that was, I was like, well, I'm going to go back to school for this. And turns out I kind of had a knack for it. And then since then, it made it my mission to like distribute knowledge, like write a book. Like I do talks all the time at stores. Like I try to just make it very accessible to people because I think it's like the most important thing. Yeah. One, it's funny because, you know, you're mentioning like elite athletes and their access to sports psychologists. And I just want to hear like, what, what are your thoughts on the importance of a sports psychologist for us amateur, like, you know, like most people in ultra running have jobs and kids and families like they're just they're regular people just doing this thing for fun like what what's kind of what do you think is the importance of being able to access these ideas for for us regular folks yeah my favorite thing about sports psychology is it's really in fact it should just be called performance psychology we don't even need to isolate it to sport because all the skills are transferable like the skills that you learn uh, like psychological and mental skills are going to help anybody just like exist in the world happier, more productively. And what I've noticed is the more effort and time I've put into it myself is my results have gotten better, but like my relationships have gotten better. I'm generally happier. My career has gotten better. Um, so it's not like you learn these mental skills isolated to the ultra running world. You know, they, they kind of expand and affect every part of your life. But I guess if I had to make like an even bigger point, actually, I'll make two. I have two bigger points. One is we're all quick to like hire a coach, pay $300 for the fastest shoes, get massages every two weeks, buy all the gear and all the stuff. But if you don't have the mental piece, it's that's the piece that brings everything together on race day. So that's what I tell athletes a lot is like you're willing to spend the time and the money and the effort and the resources on all these other things. And you're, you're missing the piece that like glues it all together kind of. And then secondly, the biggest piece is 
um, you, you say like us amateur runners or, or people that are just like trying to finish or something like, yeah, but that's like, I'm a firm believer in a lot of ability. Uh, a lot of it's genetic. Like I was genetically gifted. Like my brothers are athletic. My dad was, I'm lucky. And I'm also lucky that, that my dad was a runner and started me running when I was seven or eight years old. Like a lot of it is just circumstance when you're introduced to the sport, what your training was like, what your genetic makeup is. So some people, no matter how much they train or if they have the best coach or whatever, like even me, I'm never going to be like Paula Radcliffe or, you know, Kipchoge or someone that's never going to be me. I don't have the physical makeup to do that, but the psychological piece, like you have just as much to access as I do. I have just as much to access as Kipchoge does. Like nobody has like an advantage. It's not like, sorry, your, your like confidence level is, is capped right here. Cause that's just like the way that it is. That's not how it works. I think yeah. that's pretty cool is like, man, that's, that's pretty sick. Like no one has an advantage over me. I can like get better at this than anybody else. And then it doesn't matter if maybe I don't have, you know, that slight edge physically or physiologically. Yeah. Oh man. So, and the like elasticity of the mind mm-hmm. is something that is really, really fascinating to me. And it's like, um, the idea of like, I'm trying to think how, how people have worded it in the past, basically like you're able to access more, you know, like I'm able to go dig deeper, access more resilience, um, you know, how, and how that's developed. Like, is there any kind of strategies you've used like throughout your career, you know, in terms of like, uh, tapping into like your psychological potential or resources yeah being like okay i thought i could i thought i could only go this hard Mm -hmm. and then i realized there's like a whole nother level that i haven't accessed yet yeah i mean there's a couple of things one uh i i do believe this too well you're, you're right in terms of the brain is very elastic like it is your mind is very malleable it 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 can change quickly but it also does what like what you ask it to most often, or it gets into habits or, um, you're like, if you're not doing anything, if you're not doing any kind of intentional psychological work, you're unintentionally still creating habits. That's kind of the piece that's frustrating, right? Like if you're not putting, you're still like something is still guiding your behaviors and your decision-making all the time, every day. So if you're not putting, it's not like, it's like not a piece of the pie, it's just not one that you're taking advantage of. So that part already was like pretty eye opening to me of like, Holy cow. Like it's not like I'm adding the mental piece. It's the mental piece is already here, but it's not helping me. And, yeah. and like, why would I, I don't know, not like try and have more control or self-awareness over that. Um, one thing is you to, to get better at doing hard things, you have to do hard things. And that's something, an answer a lot of people don't like is yeah, to get your brain better at handling discomfort. You have to do uncomfortable things. Like that's how you get better. It's, it's mental training. You have to train uh, and, and put effort and intention into it. And that that's one way. Um, I, I also kind of describe sports psychology in some ways as I call it like PT for the brain. So in terms of like, let's say I'm a runner that has had a lot of issues with like my knee and my foot on like all on the same side. So I go see a PT and I'm like, this hurts, like fix my knee. And then, you know, you work, they watch you run, they do kind of assessment strength, whatever. And they're like, well, your knee's not even the problem. It's like your glute or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so sports like is similar and what I've noticed has helped me tap into those extra level or extra like resources or push myself further or whatever is like the things that were holding me back before they're like the symptoms. It's like the knee pain, you know, whatever, whatever it was that I was, for me, it was like performance anxiety or confidence or whatever. Yeah. And like I would keep trying to address those things, but they weren't getting better. And I'm like, what's the problem here? And then similarly, you have to kind of find like the root issue or like the core thing that's causing the problem. And then when you can fix that, like the symptoms kind of change. Uh, so I don't know, honestly, self-awareness, I think is like the most important thing in the world as a human. And that's basically what sports psychology is. It's like spending the time and energy to understand how your brain perceives the world around you, what kind of thoughts and emotions you have about it, and then how that impacts your behavior. And if you're not doing that, then you're kind of missing actually literally what makes, what's, what stands humans apart from every other species. Like we have self-awareness and most of us like really aren't tapping into it. Yeah. Well, and it's so easy nowadays to distract ourselves like constantly. And I've been just as guilty as anyone else at doing it. You know, like you wake up and you're instantly doing something to distract your brain from actually thinking about yourself. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know. I, I, it's funny. Cause when I've done that in the past and you know, every so often I realize that I'm doing that, but for whatever reason, I don't want to access that, that part of my brain. And I don't know why I think it's just like an avoidance thing. Yeah. It's not fun. And sometimes it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah. I do the same thing as I'm like, I had to like put, uh, like settings on my phone that would like shut me off of Instagram, like after a certain amount of time in it, cause it's hard, it's hard yeah. to have like, that's, I mean, there's a, obviously a lot of like, I don't know, like neurochemistry and stuff happening in our brains too with social media. So it's, I don't know, we can, that's a whole different topic, but that you're right. Is. Not, yeah, I was, I was just watching something about like the endorphin, whatever, like it's, it was something that was like, go on an endorphin uh, detox. And I'm like, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Which is basically just intentionally boring yourself. And I'm like, I'm cool (laughs) with that. Let's do that. That sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not the fun work. It's not like the exciting work, but it's the one that has the most impact. So it's not always easy to convince people to put time and effort into it. But once they do, I think when you see the results, it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Like if I'm going to be putting all these hours in the training, like I can put a little bit of time into this. Yeah. How excited do you get over your results? like your times, whether you finished a race, uh, how excited do you get about that versus in the reflection when you're looking back on like what got you there or, you know, the aspects of the journey of the race versus like the destination. Yeah. Like like the process versus the outcome. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, we're in a sport that's objective, right? Like that's something that works for us and against us. It's, it's nice because you can kind of see improvement. It's easy to track progress and that kind of thing, but it also does make it hard. It's, it's objective. And sometimes the parameters for what we think is successful are like pretty specific. Um, I think I'm usually able to separate them in some, in some ways. Like, I, I mean, I do sports psychology is my job. It's what I do all day, every day. I, I compete because I love it, but I also want to win. Like I don't want to win and I'm not going to act like I don't. Um, but I it's, that's maybe not the the foundational reason why I do it. And so for me, it comes back. I was actually just talking with a client earlier before this call about this kind of concept, because she was asking a similar thing, like, okay, well, if you have this objective goal and it's not working out, like what even keeps you in the race? Yeah. And so for me, it's like values are huge. Like I'm a multidimensional person and there's like several values in my life that are really important. And one is that I'm curious at what my body can do. And that means I want to win races and I want to run fast. And that is a value is to like get on the start line and put out an effort that would hopefully put me in that position. But if that's not happening, um, another value of mine is, is like, I very much, I have like a, almost like a spiritual or like intense idea about what competition means. And to me, it's about the other competitors too. And I've said this before and like, like I will, I dropped out of one race in my life and it was because it was Western States this year. It was like 110 degrees. I was, I was pulled medically. I didn't even drop other than that. I have never dropped from a race and I'm not, I'm not shaming people that have, like, I think there's times when you should, but for me, another value is that like, I respect my competition so much that it's important to me to always put down the best effort I have on a day, even if the outcome isn't what I want because I respect them. Like if someone is going to beat me, then I want them to beat me outright. Like I want to like finish, even if it's horrible and I'm embarrassed or whatever, like they deserve that. And so when you have these like tiers of values, um, I think you're able to kind of, you don't have to choose like process or outcome. You don't have to choose like journey or destination. I think that there's like components of both and just layering it like that and having like multiple reasons why you line up, um, kind of creates a situation where you can fall back on other ones. You you can like hold things at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think that's, uh, one of the chapters in your book is about your why. And I'm thinking that's kind of like something you're getting out there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just going out there for a belt buckle or a fast time, like good luck. That's not sustainable. Like maybe you'll get through one race like that, but yeah, yeah. I guess good luck pushing, you know, getting to mile 70 and finding a reason to keep going. If that's the only reason. (laughs) Well, so you just mentioned a word that I've been thinking about and it was just like, um, the idea that it's going through like a spiritual process and it's hard to describe because, you know, I've grew up as an athlete doing all sorts of different sports 
And I would never describe any of those experiences though, like really like defining in my life. I wouldn't describe them as like spiritual journeys. Uh, and yet almost every ultra run I've done, I'm like, wow, I come out of it with like a different perspective about the whole entire, my whole entire world. And I was just wondering if you've had like similar experiences or anything like that. Totally. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I mean, obviously I think nature is a big piece. Yeah. Uh, there's also something even at the elite level, like, again, I, I am trying to win these races a lot of the time and, and coming from a, a background where I was also trying to win races, but it was like shorter and more intense. There's also a different feel in terms of like people, it doesn't feel like you're competing against each other. It feels yeah. like you're competing with each other again, even if you're trying to win, um, it feels like the challenge is we all know we're about to go through like some <laughs> kind of thing. And it's like, Oh man, like, yeah, I hope, I hope I succeed at mine better than you and like finish first, but it's not about you. It's about me. It's about like the journey I'm going to go on. Um, I think that's a component. And then just like, geez, the sheer amount of time you're out there on your own, like confronting all this stuff. I think it, it almost, it is, I don't even, I don't even know what words to put to it either, but it's like an experience that you don't get anywhere else. Like you're going through all these like doubts and like having all these thoughts and feelings that like you didn't even know you had. And then like confronting them and then still moving forward and like taking another step. And it's, it's pretty amazing. I wish, I wish that everybody had like the opportunity or ability to, to cover a far distance just to see like what the experience is like. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking about this, like when people who don't, who haven't done an endurance event like this or an ultra endurance event, when they see it, they're seeing this like physical roller coaster. Like they're seeing the person up like running fast and then crashing and burning like blisters and all this stuff. Um, which is great, but if you could see the mental roller coaster going through someone's head, it would make that physical roller coaster look like the carousel at the amusement park. You know what I mean? Like the mental journey is so much crazier and it's hard to describe, but it's why I personally love ultra running. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I wish I could. My mom was always like, What do you think about when you're out there? And I'm like, Mom, I don't even know how to go into it. I have no idea just a lot about it. What don't I think about? <laughs> I think about everything and I think about nothing at you the do, same time. Yeah. It's yeah. bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I was curious about this cause you've, you've, uh, you've trained and then you've been a sports psychologist for all sorts of athletes and all sorts of sports. And, um, in, you, you mentioned something about having like turned the switch on versus the moments you have to like turn the switch off. And I have to imagine, you know, in sports like volleyball or basketball, you want that switch to be on all the time. Like you don't want to zone out, but there are probably intentional moments in ultra running where you're like, Hey, I have to, I have to turn this intensity off for a little bit and then I can get back to it later. Can you kind of talk about like the balance between those two? Yeah. So, um, just like physically pacing, you know, mental energy is it's also a limited resource. It's not like we have endless amounts of, uh, I don't know, like resource to pull from, to, to be like focused and engaged and intense for like hours and hours and hours and hours. It's not, it's not possible. Um, so it's, it's about like, I could, I could go on a big tangent and a big rant, but it comes down a lot to, to about like how focus and attention actually works in the brain. Uh, when you can understand that you can understand like what types of attention and focus you need at certain moments. That's like the attention aspect. But then what you're describing too, is also like the nervous system, um, the nervous system. It's like when we feel intense and anxious and excited, like that's not, they're not, those aren't just thoughts and emotions. There's like something happening in our body, uh, that also takes energy. So, you know, in an ultra race, if you're, I always talk about, yeah, you're talking about other sports, but the difference between the start line of like a hundred meters and a hundred miles, that's a big difference. Like this person needs to be like charged, like amped, ready to go for the hundred, but for the, for the hundred miles, I mean, you're going to be out there for a day or more and you need to kind of, there's times to zone in and like times to focus and times, uh, that that should be the case, but there's also like mental pacing, you know, like saving, saving energy. Like for me, I'm actually very intentional about, um, I'm, I'm kind of known for this and I think it annoys people, but I will like start conversations and like talk for the first 20, 30 miles of a race, because I want to like 
I want to be casual. I don't want to be like focusing and zoning in. But then when I hit the second half, I'm like, don't talk to me. Like nobody yeah. talks to me. I'm like <laughs> zoning in. So you, you want to like preserve those resources. And then our sports also interesting uh, in, in the nervous system side, because we're running through the night. Like sometimes you're starting at two in the morning or three in the morning. So I found often that it's, it's less about like turning like the switch off or turning the volume down and more like getting some energy. You know, sometimes that's, that's a strategy too, of like, it's three in the morning, it's four in the morning. Like I'm exhausted. I like, I just want to lay down and take a nap. So yeah, there's gotta be strategies for both sides. Uh, and then also the self-awareness to recognize like when you're straying too far on like in one direction. Yeah. Well, how do you, when you are in the middle of the night, do you intentionally like start thinking about things just to get your brain going again? So you're not like sleepwalking or falling asleep or anything like that. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, it's nice. That's a, a, a big reason why I think they let people have pacers too, is to yeah. kind of help with that cognitive engagement. Um, it's, it's tough too, because it's not just that it's the night, it's also like dark. And that's something that tells our bodies it's time to go to sleep. So, you know, like getting brighter headlamps is, is great for seeing better, but it's also great for this. It's like, um, it, it can kind of almost trick your brain into thinking that, Oh, okay. It's not, maybe it's not time to sleep. Um, there's breathing techniques that calm that, that turn off your, or turn down your sympathetic nervous system, which is if you're like too anxious, but there's also ones that turn it up if you're like too tired. So breathing's a big one. Um, there's, I think I put a lot in the book, but there's quite a few strategies. Uh, yeah. To kind of target both ends of that spectrum. Nice. Sorry. I'm just writing this down for future reference for yeah, no like, breathe, breathe differently at night. Yeah. I didn't yeah. even think about that, but that's so <laughs> smart. I, you know, cause you know, I have, I have kids and, uh, when they're getting upset, we're like, okay, do your breathing, like calm yourself down. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, they should, if they, if I wanted to get them pumped up, I'll just be like, let's go. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's it's fascinating. <laughs> what, um, what like commonalities, like having been an elite athlete and worked with elite athletes, like what commonalities do you see amongst like the high, high performers, like the top of the top? Are we talking like ultra running specifically or just in general? Just in general. Yeah. Just people who are really, you know, high level at their sport and competitive and things like that. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, yeah, I work with athletes in such a range of sports too. So it's yeah. kind of interesting to see like the difference. Like I work <laughs> with swimmers, WNBA players, field hockey, like it, it, it's so different. Um, gosh, Do I they think, all have like different personalities kind of like, are you like, can you meet people now and be like, you're definitely a swimmer or, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> for sure. I mean, yeah, especially like a sport like swimming, I, I the personalities tend to be similar to like runners because there's a lot of, you know, like kind of type A personalities because uh, the, the training is that way. It's like very prescription oriented. Like here's the workout, here's the paces you're going to hit versus like a team sport. Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference between uh, those things. Um, Self-awareness, I've said that already a couple of times. I've noticed even in some of my young athletes, I work with a few athletes who are like 14, 15, but like the best in their sport at their age. Uh, and even their self-awareness, they don't have like the words or language that I would for it with my psychology background, but they'll kind of describe like a situation uh, where they were able to recognize like what was happening and then be able to like kind of correct it. Yeah. Um, whether that was attention, whether it was like anxiety. So like, that's pretty cool. Just the number. And even writing this book, like I did a case study for every chapter where I interviewed an athlete and I don't, to my knowledge, I don't think a single person had ever had ever had any exposure to sports psychology yet. The things that they were saying, I'm like, that's called this. You, yeah. here's, here's this research study. And then they're like, Oh, okay, cool. I don't know. I just learned how to do that. So it's almost like the self-awareness uh, to have somehow like figured out some of these things on their own. Um, I will, I I'll say curious mind slash like adaptable again too, because I've also noticed the athletes that are at the top, they aren't so much attached to, they aren't attaching like their worth to the outcome so much as like self, self-efficacy again, like they believe that they can be at the top. So if it's yeah. not happening or there was a poor performance or whatever, they're, they're the ones that are like, analyze what went wrong. Okay. How can I like 
take that into training? How can I shift or pivot or what do I need to be focusing on? Uh, rather than just like, Oh, that wasn't good. Cause I suck, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's like, I don't see that as much. I see it them seeing, um, failure is it's cheesy failure is feedback, but like seeing the failure is like, uh, valuable, like evidence of like, Oh, okay. I can change that. Like, here's what went wrong. I can, I can adjust that, or I can work on that, or I can change that. So I think that's definitely a big piece too. Um, well, and that seems to be that attention, like actually taking time to be like, why did I fail versus trying to completely ignore it and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I failed. Like there's, it's two different mindsets there. Yeah. That's it. That's even a piece I've noticed in myself is it because, because to be honest, I, when I first moved into trail and ultra running, I was crushing it. Like yeah. I was, I had been competing on the track and roads where I was getting like my butt kicked all the time. Cause I'm racing like yeah. the best people in the world. And I moved to the trails and, and mountains and I'm like, this is easy. I'm like winning every race. And yeah. I got so cocky. <laughs> and then, and then it just like, like plummeted. And I like, cause I, I saw it as winning all the time or doing well all the time made me think I had it all figured out. And so then there was all these blind spots that I didn't see. And I like crashed and burned and had some bad races. And so now I'm like, it's a gift to have a race that's poor because then you're, then it shows you what you, where you can get better. If you just are like winning all the time or it's going well all the time, like I thought I had it all figured out and I didn't have anything figured out. I was just kind of getting lucky, I think. So yeah, it's, it's hard to treat it that way to treat like failure as a gift, but it, it is, I truly think that it is. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell my student, my students at school that fail is first attempt in learning. And nice. then I make them fail on purpose. Like I'll give them something that is, they can't do. Like I, this year I gave them, we, they haven't learned how to use the microscopes yet. So I gave them a test on microscopes the very first day. <laughs> and then I was like, okay. And in two weeks, we're going to try this again. You're going to like learn from that experience. Right. And I was hoping by actually doing it, by having them go through that and see that it would be okay on the other side, that especially for like the really high achieving students, right? that would be a good lesson for them. Cause there are, you know, I teach seventh grade. So I have kids that get to me that have never failed at anything ever up until that point. And you're like, Whoa, like eventually you're going <laughs> to face something that's going to yeah. defeat you. And you have to learn how to handle that, you know? Totally. But, and that's what I think like is the importance of sports. I mean, it's, yeah. it's this place that allows you to fail. It's a, it's a safe failing ground where you can go out and you can fail and then have that be your teacher, you know, mm -hmm. which is, which is crazy. But so just to draw it back to your story, when like this year at Western States, when you had to get pulled out and I'm sure that was horrible and not what you wanted and things like that. Um, are you able to like dig deep into your sports psychology background to like and access all of these lessons or in the moment, is it like, Oh, like the emotional side of like, Oh, this sucks. <laughs> that kind of, yeah. Thing. I, I mean, it's funny because you might relate to this in some way, but sometimes like we don't apply the things we know to ourselves. Like yeah. I'm sitting here like, <laughs> meeting with athletes every day. And, and then I, it's not like I'm looking at myself like that. So actually what it took was, um, I had someone like call me out there. I wasn't like, there was, there were circumstances that made me get to the point where I had to, like, it was hot, of course, but there was also a lot of things that were in my control. Like I wasn't, um, one thing I talk about a lot recently is like information processing, like as we're going through the world, there's just like information coming at us all the time. And we're like responding to it. That's like what it means to be exist, like just to exist. And, and in the context of probably in daily life, but especially in performance, there's information that's feedback that's actionable that you can interpret. And it's either like feedback. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing, or that's not working, like change up your nutrition or slow down or whatever it is. And then there's distractions, which is information that really has no bearing on what we're doing or shouldn't really be used to evaluate what, how we're doing. But I was getting them like confused. Like I was, so I'm, I'm, I was racing to win. I thought I could win. So I'm sitting there like we're on course record pace. So I'm like looking at my watch, like we, we get to an aid station, it's a hundred degrees. I know I need to stop longer and get an extra yeah. bottle and like get ice and whatever, but 
the girl that I came in with rushes out. So I rush out and I'm like, well, no, she's not stopping. I'm not stopping. So there's like all these things where I'm just like not implementing my knowledge and like not doing what I know and acting very like urgent. Uh, And a few months later, I ran a race here and a local race director, this guy, Nick Clark, who's a phenomenal athlete. He, he doesn't race anymore, but he's been like podium at Western States a number of times. And he kind of called me out and was like, you gotta, you gotta change what you're doing. Like, it's not working for you. You need to let the race come to you instead of trying to force it. And so I, I had, I ran run rabbit run if, like a couple months later after Western States and had like the race of my life. And it literally was just this idea of like, let me not try and yeah, like bend reality to fit my expectations, which is what I was doing. Like if reality wasn't unfolding the way I wanted it to, then I just like made it do it. I'm like, Nope, this is what's happening. And that doesn't work in hundreds. Uh, I don't even remember what your question was now. Cause I started rambling so much, but basically like I wasn't using the knowledge that I had. And once yeah. I had an external person call me out, it was easier for me to, to say like, you're kind of right. Like I didn't yeah. really realize that. Cause I feel like I know this stuff, but clearly I'm not like applying it to myself. Yeah. No, I, and I always ask my, my cousins a physical therapist and I always ask her the same questions. Cause I'm like, you know, so much, but you're also an athlete yeah. and a human. And it's so, it's such the human instinct to kind of be like, no, but like, this doesn't, this might not apply to me though. Like <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing. Exactly. Um, but I love that you brought up the idea of like relinquishing control. Um, cause I wanted to wrap up with that. I, I, I skipped ahead to the chapter called run with courage. Cause I just thought, and I shouldn't skip ahead. I know I'm going back. I'm going back. I promise. But, um, but I just loved that concept. And in that concept, you talk about like just relinquishing control in ultras. And I just want to hear how, how you think, cause you've mentioned there are a lot of people who have that type a personality. And a big part of that is being in control. Um, how, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you handle the, like, I'm going to relinquish the control here. I'm not going to be in control, but I'm going to go with the flow kind of aspect. Yeah. This, this is something that took me a while to learn as an ath- as an ultra athlete. I, I think, cause I think it's, it's true probably in every performance setting to a degree, but I think in ultra specifically, there's just like so much out of your control that it's even more important. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that there's this tendency to believe that, and I fell into this hundred percent that the more prepared you are, the more control you have. And now the way I look at it is the more prepared you are, the more like tools you have to respond to whatever's happening. It's not like you're going to control the environment or the circumstances. Um, and there's this, uh, yeah, I always say it's really easy in ultras to be, to be really stubborn, but call it being tough. Uh, when really you're just like trying to like force the situation or control it instead of like stepping back and like taking uh, into consideration what's happening, whether that's nutrition issue, blister, like whatever's happening. The second piece for ultra is that I literally just kind of realized this in, in these two different race scenarios that I was talking about is in the past, I've always felt like, or I'll just say Western States, for example, I was like annoyed at everything that was going wrong. Like the fact that it was hot was like annoying to me. The fact that I couldn't get cool. And, um, I was running out of water. was like, I was like annoyed. I'm like, okay, I'm trying to win this race. And these things are happening that are like making me mad. Like they're like Im- impeding my ability to do what I want to do. Yeah. And, and that's just racing ultras. Like that's not, those challenges aren't a nuisance. That's what the race, that's what the race is. And yeah. so when you can approach a race with like, this is not about like who can cover, who can go from mile zero to mile 100 as hiccup free as possible, as fast as possible. It's who's going to like respond to things in the right way and be efficient and be adaptable and problem solve and pivot if they need to. Uh, when you can kind of view it that way and see blisters and puking and whatever happens, headlamps dying, like whatever happens, those aren't, those aren't like nuisances or things that are like trying to derail your performance. That, that is the performance. And I think when you approach it that way, it makes it easier to like be present and problem solve and then ultimately set yourself up to have like the day that you want to have. Yeah. And then you had the like sports movie moment of, you know, early in the movie, you fail at Western States and then you go to run rabbit run and just completely crush it. Um, 
would you, was that a race for you where like just all the pieces fell into place perfectly or is there still aspects of that that you're like oh, i could have improved upon different parts i think that it yeah it's it's funny because you can look at that race and that's probably the best race i've ever run but you don't you miss the backstory right like you miss like all the times i failed before and yeah. then you miss the actual experience it's easy to think like oh yeah maybe everything just clicked on that day but that's yeah. not the case. Like I had my back like seized up 10 miles into the race and that was stressful. And my headlamp died, uh, on like an, an, I think it was an eight mile section where I didn't have a headlamp for eight miles. And I had my phone luckily. So I had like the tiniest little phone light, but like, that's oh man, I, I run with the phone light all the time. And really? maybe, yeah, well, not, not anything because it's just mostly I'm not prepared and I'm running in the morning and yeah. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to get the headlamp or the batteries are dead. I don't want to change them. Yeah. But I'm like, maybe that's preparing me for some future event where my that happens and you have to do it. It was, it was pretty tough to navigate to be honest. It's hard. You slow down, you slow way down. Ton, yeah. 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 So like that happened. Um, this race, like you don't, you didn't, I didn't have a pacer or anything. I'd never had that before. I'd never gone through the night totally through the night before, um, I was puking, like everything went wrong, but it just yeah. like, I didn't, I didn't see it as a problem. And so maybe that was the piece that went right. I just like stopped and handled it. Like whatever was happening, I stopped and handled it. I, I like problem solved and didn't stress about the outcome. I didn't even think about the outcome and I didn't know how fast I was running. I didn't know I almost had a course record. Cause I wasn't thinking about it. I was just like taking it a mile at a time kind of. So I guess the pieces fell into place in terms of I was finally able to take all the lessons I had learned, but it yeah. wasn't like things didn't go wrong. They definitely did. Yeah. What, um, what do you, how do you handle the pressure of succeeding? Like when you find yourself in first and you know, you're, you still have miles and miles and hours and hours to go. Like, how do you handle that pressure? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, I do, I have a sponsor, like it does in some sense matter how I, how I do, but yeah. Um, and, and I guess I put pressure on myself, but I, I guess the way that I see it is if someone's better than me on a day, they're better than me on that day. And something that someone, something someone said to me recently that kind of stuck was like your best performance is always accessible. Meaning my best on any day is always something I can pull off. Like, it doesn't mean it's going to be a PR. It doesn't mean it's going to be a win, but it means I did the best that I could on that day. And hopefully that leads to me placing how I want to place, but I, I don't win races often. Actually, that was like probably one of the first races I've won in a long time. So it's not like I'm always winning. Uh, so yeah, definitely. There's times when it's a, it's a distraction. Like there was times when I'm asking like at aid stations, like how far back is she? Like, am I getting caught? Like what's happening? Uh, like super stressed, but at the end of the day, like it doesn't matter. Like, I'm, I'm going as fast as I can and I'm being as efficient as I can. So uh, at the end, like ultimately what she's doing has no bearing on what I'm doing. And even if I knew she was gaining on me or whatever, like it, it's not like I can go any faster. So yeah, uh, I guess just treating the pressure as, as a distraction kind of, and just like being able to refocus to what's the best effort I, I can put out today. And like, that's always good enough, whether I win or not, that's always like, I feel like I can walk away happy. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, Addy, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people kind of either follow your journey? Uh, where can people buy the book? I bought it on my phone book app. I oh, don't nice. know what that's called. Apple phone book app, but it's on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I think you can, it's on sale on Amazon. There's a, yeah, you probably got the digital version. There's like a Kindle yeah. version and then like a hard copy version. Um, and then I'm, I'm really only on Instagram, just at Addie Bracy. And then my sports psychology. Um, yeah, sorry. I wanted to mention that strive no, no, mental no performance, right? Yep. yep. So strive mental performance.com has more information on that. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, good luck with everything in the future. I'm looking forward to finishing the book. <laughs> I, I apologize. I was trying to get most of it read before chatting oh, with you. That's totally okay. Yeah. I hope it's helpful. Oh yeah. All righty. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I uh, hope you took something away from that conversation. I know I made a whole list of notes while Addy was talking. Um, and, you know, if you are an ultra runner, I hope this conversation helps you kind of uh, dial in your performance or, you know, maximize whatever your performance is. Um, 
But more importantly, like if you're just a normal human being going through normal human being life stuff, I hope this conversation with Addy will just help you along your way, along your journey. Um, I'm reading your book right now and I, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I think, I don't know, maybe it's just what's connecting with me right now more so than the whole like prepping to race and stuff, but it's the idea of uh, courage. So I skipped ahead to the courage chapter. I will, I am going back uh, and reading hopefully next week, being on vacation I just have this dream where I'm going to be sitting there reading books. <laughs> and I know I also have three kids, which is the reality. And reading book time is uh, doesn't happen as often as you would imagine. The quiet time doesn't happen as much as you think uh, with three kids. But uh, I love in this chapter, she equates courage to the idea of vulnerability. Um, because, you know, as I grew up and I, you know, observed courageous acts when it came to like TV shows or movies, like fictional courageous acts, sometimes you would find these people who were seemingly not vulnerable at all. Um, they, they would just be, you know, and the, the word, I think it's not used properly, but the idea of like, they would just stoically go about their way and like you just think of like Clint Eastwood and like the good the bad the ugly just like walking along like observing stuff and <laughs> and and somehow like being heroic um but never showing like emotions or anything like that or really like you you're like you watch that those old movies and you're like there's no way that dude's like even thinking about like his feelings right and and the idea, though, is like, obviously, those were fiction, you know, like being courageous is to be vulnerable. Um, and I want to say that I'm thankful for this podcast because I do feel like it's a way for me every week, uh, especially in the outro, because I'm like, I don't think anyone's listening to the outro. Um, that's my thought process. That <laughs> maybe that's why I can be more authentic and vulnerable in the outro. But I do feel like it's nice to have this time where I get to just sit in a room by myself and just talk aloud to myself, basically. And I'm talking into a mic right now, but really a lot of these outros, it seems like I'm just giving myself a pep talk. Um, and I'm sitting here right next to my journal which I've written in twice in the last like six months. You know, I have a goal to write every day and I was doing it super consistently for a while and then fell off the wagon on that. Um, and I'm sitting here next to it and I'm like, oh, is the outro of this podcast like kind of like my journal? Like, is this the place where I'm able to kind of like open up and all this stuff and and just speak aloud like thoughts that I've had? And what I hope is that if you've listened to the podcast and you have actually listened to some of these outros, I hope you're not walking away with a perception of of someone who's not vulnerable or someone, you know, like I just hope what I'm putting out there paints the picture of who I really am. Like I would like to think I'm you know, I'm being authentic when I'm doing this podcast. I really, really would. Um, sometimes during the outros though, like I will say when I'm speaking aloud in like a calm setting by myself, like the thoughts that I have are like the idealized version of those thoughts. These are what I want to live up to. Um, and yet a lot of times, you know, real life happens and it's hard to actually live up to these concepts and these ideals um and and i'm it makes you think like oh man like this is it's tough like when life gets hard what how are you responding responding to it and are you tuning out and are you going zombie mode or like numbing yourself to the experience just to get through or are you trying to be better? 
And is the act of like trying to be better, is that what ultimately makes someone a good person? Is that ultimately something to like, that's commendable in somebody? Maybe they're not perfect all the time. And like none of us have been, you know, there are probably moments in each and every person's life that they're like, oh man, I wish I would have handled that situation differently. Um, and I know there are many, many, many moments in my life that I'm like, man, I wish I would have handled that differently. And, you know, you try not to dwell on those moments and you try to learn from them and do better. But there are definitely mistakes that I've made that I've repeated over and over again. And you're like, why do I keep doing this? Like what these challenges keep coming up and I'm making the same mistakes. And I think being able to be self-reflective is really the biggest way to like combat making the same mistakes. And if you want to draw a parallel to endurance racing or whatever, um, you know, you could say like if if you're in an ultra and you keep making these same mistakes over and over again, like every race, then that means that there's something about your actions that you need to change, right? Um, and in your life, if there are mistakes you keep making over and over and over again, and you are frustrated because you're like, oh my God, why does this keep happening to me? And which is a really weird way of putting that. Like if you put it, why does this keep happening to me? You're kind of like taking the ownership off of yourself, which is not okay. Um, I think another way of putting that would be like, what do I keep doing that is ma making these things happen? Or why do I keep responding in this way to these outside events that, that happen? Um, and I think that's probably like a better way to kind of go about that. Um, and so I'm hoping, I don't know why that thought has come up along while with reading, uh, Addie's chapter about courage and vulnerability, but I think that like honesty, um, is really important. And she mentions in the book, like that's helps you make connections and the more connections you make, you know, actual personal connections with people will allow you to be like compassionate to yourself and kind of help you get through whatever situation you're in. Um, so yeah, and it's weird. Like doing a podcast is kind of a weird way to go about that vulnerability because, and I will say though, like the episodes where I've shared really hard life experiences um, like I think back one of the best episodes of this podcast, in my opinion, um, is with my friend, Phil Pinty. Um, and I'm trying to find the number. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but, uh, it was one of our first major conversations. Phil's been on like a handful of times. Like he's just a really fascinating dude. Um, a lot to him. Uh, but in one of our first episodes, we just talked about like grief and how like ultra runnings helped us get through grief. And that, that was episode number 136. And that honestly, like after recording it was, it felt like this weight was off my shoulders because I got to connect with somebody about something that isn't an easy topic to talk about every, like with in like an everyday conversation, you know what I mean? Um, but by allowing myself to do that and be open and hopefully he thought the same thing, but like by allowing ourselves to be open about these situations and honest about how we felt and authentic with each other, it actually allowed us to like, just have like a bigger capacity for dealing with grief and dealing with our situation. So, um, so yeah, I totally agree with this. all of this stuff that Addie writes about in her book though, about vulnerability and, you know, I mean, you could connect it back to an actual race. And if you have friends there or you have people there supporting you and you are vulnerable in the moments that you're struggling, you're gonna probably receive more help than if you're trying to be emotionalist and be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like that kind of situation. So, so yeah. 
Um, I bring all this up because it's getting close to the holiday season. Thanksgiving's next week. Uh, and I know that's a hard time for a lot of people, which is weird. It shouldn't be, but it is. It's stressful. It can be emotional, um, you know. And so hopefully, you know, a lot of people are getting with their families. Hopefully you can sit down and just, you know, be open, be honest and hang out and really be vulnerable with each other and laugh and cry and all that fun stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, happy Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for all of you for who, uh, who are tuning into this podcast, um, but especially you guys sticking around 10 minutes after the interview. <laughs> No, I'm just joking. I'm thankful for everybody who's given this a shot. Uh, it's been an awesome project. It's expanded my life in so many ways. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I am going to take a week off next week. Um, and then we'll come back. We're going to talk about marathon swimming. There's jellyfish. There's sharks. There's whale poop. It's all there in uh, the next episode of the podcast, which will be coming out in two weeks with Catherine or Catherine. Catherine Breed. All right. We'll get back at you next week. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday. Um, enjoy. Eat a bunch of stuff. It'll be awesome. Have fun. Smile. Laugh. Be merry. All that stuff. All right. See you.